to you. And so I would highly recommend, even though I did not provide it, that you take some kind of notes. Um, if you want some of these notes after the fact, please let me know and I'll get you whatever, uh, whatever it is that you would like. Um, and uh, here's what we'll try and cover. Now, here, here's what I'll say as, as we start. We're going to cover just as much as we can in the time that we have. And wherever we end is where we're going to pick up next time. Um, because what I want to allow time for is interaction from you to ask any kind of questions that you might have about the material. Or if something I've said didn't quite translate well. Uh, or if there's gaps that haven't been filled in. Um, please let me know and we can kind of have a little bit of an interactive time here rather than kind of an address like a sermon because that's not what this is. This isn't a, this isn't a sermon. But we're taking a few weeks out to look at how did we get our Bible and where did it come from? And so here's a few things that I, I hope to cover. I doubt we're going to cover all of it tonight. But I want to look at preservation, terminology, transmission, and then some writing materials. And uh, so let's start with this, and, and we're, we're going to look at uh, preservation here first. And uh, so we, I asked you a question last week. Some of you were here last week, and I said, what is the Bible to you? And we kind of talked about that a little bit. What is the Bible exactly? And I asked a few really basic questions, um, like... How many years did it take to write the Bible? And the answer to that is 1,500. Nana wins that one, okay? About how many authors? 40. Okay, and how many languages? Three. Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic was what our Bible was originally written in. And those are really three really, really basic things that we need to know. Um, we believe that all scripture is the word of God, correct? Do you, do you believe that the book that we have here is the very word of God? And if it is the word of God, should we not pay close attention to what it says? 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, it says, but as for you, continue in what you've, you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul is saying that I know that you, from your childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. How do you, as a believer, how are you, we'll say, how are you taught? How are you reproved? How are you corrected? How are you trained in righteousness? How are you made complete and equipped for every good work? How does that happen to you? What means does God use the, word, the answer is? Scripture. Okay, so a couple of questions from that. Two, really. How can we be sure 
that what we have in our printed Bibles is the Word of God. How many books are in here? How many Old Testament books? And New Testament? 27. How can we be sure that the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament is all God said? And how can we be sure that all that God did say is found here in, in, in the pages of this book? How do we know that? How do we know? That's a good question, isn't it? Because if there were more words of God, would you want them? If God Almighty, your creator, spoke to you, would you want to have all that information? Would you want it? Would you want to know what it said? Have you read the entire Bible? More than that, have you studied the entire Bible? Because not only do we want to just read it, we want to know what it says because who said it? God said it. That's important stuff, right? Are there any indications in the Bible itself that the word of God is being preserved? Does the Bible in itself, in its pages, does it say anything about God said he's going to write a Bible and there's going to be 66 books in it and he's going to preserve that and make sure that you have it in your hands forever. Does the Bible say that about itself anywhere? The Bible doesn't say how many books there are going to be, but we determine that there are 66 of them. Who determined that? We're getting into some sketchy area, right? <laughs> I mean, it is, but it isn't. All scripture is breathed out by God. What is scripture? Paul said that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? Can we be sure that it's just the 39 books of our Old Testament? How do we know that? What did Paul and Timothy consider to be the sacred writings? Do you know the answer to that? Can you verify it? Why do we believe our printed Bibles contain sacred writings? What was involved in the process of biblical transmission and preservation so that we have this in our hands today? Over a period of how many years was this written? Is that a long time? And now, from when the time that ended, what year is it now? 2020? And Jesus lived around, what, the year 30? So it's been 2,000 years since Jesus. 1,500 years before that was Moses. It's been a long time. How can we be sure that this is what God said so long ago? What does that look like? Don't you think that's a good question to ask? And here's why we're asking it, and here's why we're answering it. Here's why we're dedicating our time to this question. Do you believe the word of God to be under attack right now, today? Do you believe that you as a Christian are being challenged as to what this is? And do you believe, actually, that our 
country was founded upon the belief that this is the word of God? Is that the majority belief today? No. So do we have a big problem? But we are going to hold fast to what we believe this to be. And what I would like to do for you is to equip you with some information to stand on a firm ground to say, yes, it is the word of God. Stop questioning me with all these little questions and you think that you're getting me by saying, how can you believe a book that's that old? How do you even know that that's the word of God? Well, I have some information for you. And I, will, I want you to be able to enter into that conversation with the world around us and let them know this is the word of God. Let me help you to understand how the Bible came to be. That's good, right? How did the Bible come to be? Well, uh, does the Bible say anything in itself about there being a word that God would preserve. I have a list here for you. I'm going to read some of them, not all of them. So if you'd like to write those down, go ahead. Um, But I'd like to read just a few. You can tell they're all pretty short. I just want to read a couple for you. You you probably know these because they become kind of popular, familiar. Psalm 119, 152. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known, your, uh, known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. So the testimonies of God, the word of God, has been founded for how long? For forever. One, Psalm 119, 160, that's just eight verses later. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. What are the righteous rules of God? The sum of your word is truth. What is the word of God? This is written in Psalm, the book of Psalms. Do you think the psalmist was saying, all of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, is your truth? He couldn't have possibly been saying that because the 39 books of the Bible of the Old Testament weren't even formed yet. A lot of them weren't even written yet. So what is he referring to? We can't think that the psalmist is referring to our entire clean, neat, printed Bible with Old and New Testament. He was most likely, though, referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which were already written and were in circulation at the time. Isaiah 48, you know this one. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what will stand forever? The word of God will stand forever. What is the word of God? All right, you see some of those other ones. Uh, I'll read this one last one. Romans 15, 4. I read this, I think, last week, but it's good. Listen to this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Question, what are the scriptures? Could he have been talking about the book of Romans? No, I was reading from the book of Romans. So he's clearly not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Was he talking about 39 books or was he talking about more books? Or was he talking about less books? What was he talking about when he said the encouragement of the scriptures? 
Okay, I have to read Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God. Textual variant. What is that? We'll talk about it. Is it the word of God or the word of Christ? It's okay. It can be either one. We don't really know. But what is it? What is the word of Christ? It is definitely something and not something else. You can't make up what the word of Christ is. It is a certain, certain thing. Right? You following me? This is a chord chart to Amazing Grace. It is not a chord chart to a different song. The word of Christ is something tangible. It is not something else. So what is it that we might hold on to it? You follow me? We want to know that. What is the word of God? Okay. Let's look at some terminology. And at this point, I would really like if you have questions to indicate for me, please. Just raise your hand and let me know that you have a question. Okay? Um, and I would really love to, if I possibly can, answer that. If I don't have an answer for you, I'd like to find an answer for you, okay? Okay, so here's some really important terminology that I would like for us to grasp so that we can have this conversation. Okay, so here's a few words. First word, Bible. Does not stand for basic information before leaving earth. Although that's cute, that's not what it stands for. Okay, uh, comes, from <laughs> comes from a Greek word, biblion, uh, then biblos, you can tell where it's going, and uh, the word biblos is actually related to the word papyrus, because wouldn't you know it, the earliest manuscripts were written on what kind of material you think? Papyrus. So the scriptures and papyrus kind of became hand in hand. Actually, books and papyrus became hand in hand, and the word Bible came to mean book. So the word Bible just means book. It's literally all it means. But when we capitalize it, what does it mean? It means the Bible, right? You've gone to the bookstore and seen like the Bible of whatever. Become an electrician, an electrician's Bible, you know, or something like that. Um, but what we have is the Bible, the book of all books. If there was ever a book worthwhile, this is the one. Why? Because it's sacred. What makes it sacred? Because it is actually God's word. Is it? Seems hard to believe. Okay, here's another word, testament. Testament's funny because I, are, I actually already said our, book, our Bible contains two testaments, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. What do we most commonly associate with the word testament? A last will and testament, most likely. Isn't that kind of what you think of maybe? Testament? Um, maybe you think of the word testimony, possibly. Uh, what is the word testament, and where does it come from, and what does it mean? Uh, it actually means covenant. So the Old Testament is really the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is really the New Covenant. But how did it come to be? What happened was it went through a little exchange. It started in Hebrew in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, and then it got translated into Greek, which meant covenant or testament. And then it was translated into Latin to the word testamentum, 
which was transliterated into English to testament. But the word actually means covenant. So it's a little confusing, isn't it? But does that make sense where the word came from? So although it says testament, it is in reference to the covenants of God, the old covenant and its system, and the new covenant and its system, 39 books for the old covenant, 27 books for the new covenant. Pretty simple, right? Okay. Uh, Scripture. We use that word a lot. Uh, Scripture, what does that word mean? In our, if you have an ESV, which is what I use and which is what a majority of you use, whenever you find the word Scripture in your New Testament, it is the word graphe. And the word graphe means writings. That's literally all it means. But maybe when we capitalize writings or we start to associate which writings, what did he say to Timothy? What, what, which writings? The sacred writings, right? Or the writings, which ones? Uh, the writings of scripture. And so we just have the word scripture. Actually, writings in Latin, guess what, is scriptura. So we know where our English word scripture came from, right? It just means writings. Do you remember in when we talked about the five solas? What is uh, the soul? What the soul? Uh, I'll just say it. We don't have time for that. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Uh, we remember that, I think. Okay, just means writings. Okay, here's two words that you need to know as we talk about these things: autograph and manuscript. An autograph is the original document penned by the biblical author himself or his scribe as he dictated it verbally. The original, the original one. Because there is no indication that any biblical author was sitting in a room like this. Actually, later on they do do this. It's called a a scriptorium. And there were a bunch of scribes and there was one man reading a master copy. And he would read, and all the scribes would be writing. That's a good way to make a lot of copies, isn't it, by hand? And that's the way it was actually practiced for a long time. But no biblical author did this that we know of. It was one single copy. The original copy. This is the one I wrote. And it's a letter, maybe. And I'm sending it to that church. They then read it. And they say, we want to give this to another church. They need to read it. But before we give it to you, let me make a copy of it. And so they write the whole thing down. Now here, take that. And then they want to give it to someone else. And so what do they do? Uh, They make a copy of it. But we're not talking about the copies. We're talking about the original, which is called the autograph. Now there are how many autographs? Original material original copies of the actual documents, how many do we have? None. There are none in existence that we know of. No original biblical autographs. Zero. It's almost a good thing, I think, because imagine what we would do to those and the kind of esteem we would give them and the wars that would be fought over them. All we have is copies. And what are the copies called? Manuscripts. That's what we have. So the big difference there, right? We believe that the word of God is infallible, inspired, authoritative, inerrant in its 
autographs. That is what every conservative statement according to the Bible ever says. In its original form, the Bible is perfect. And the reason we say that will become very clear here in just a moment, okay? If you don't already know. Textual criticism, what is that? It sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? But it's not a negative thing, I promise you. It's a very positive thing. Textual criticism is simply asking a question. How did I write it here? What did the original say? That's a good way to say it. What did the original say? That's what we want to know. What did the autograph say? So we have all these copies, thousands of copies of manuscripts, and we stack them all up. They're not actually all in one location, but if you could, you stack them all up and you say, now, all these are different. They're not all the same. There's variations. There are variants. Some manuscripts say faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Some say faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. But what did the original say? The process of determining that is called textual criticism. Okay? That's important, important word. I'd like to talk also next just for a second. Any questions about those terms? Talk for a second about transmission. That is, how is it transmitted through time? And... Uh, this is going to help us. Uh, this is going to help us to understand when a manuscript was a copy of a manuscript was given, and you take it back to your hometown, which was a ten-day journey, and all of a sudden people start to copy it, but they're kind of making the similar mistakes. Then your area of the world has kind of a manuscript that's taken on its own identity because you guys are all making the same errors. But then I took mine to my hometown way over here, a different direction, and I made a mistake when I copied it. So now everybody in my region of the world is making that same mistake because that's what I did. And so this area of the world, they kind of all have the same mistakes in their manuscripts. Does that make sense? So there are three major text types or families. And they are the Alexandrian text type, the Byzantine text type, and the Western text type. You might be thinking in this moment, what are we talking about and why is this important? I sympathize. But I promise that if you don't have this, this, this is basic information about where the Bible came from. This is basic. Basic information about where the Bible came from you have to understand, first of all, that there are no original, there's no original material. We don't have it. What we have is copies. Are the copies good quality or bad quality? Which copies do you want your Bible to be out of? The good ones. How do you know which ones are the good ones? The ones with the fewest mistakes. Which ones contain mistakes? Right. Do you see how this is a deep well? There are people who dedicate their entire lives to the study of textual criticism. And we are thankful for them because they produce for us this. 
without people dedicating their lives to textual criticism, you would not have a Bible in your hand today. We are thankful for them. I'm not one of them. They're very intelligent people. (laughs) Uh, David, I believe, actually contributes to that world, though, in the biblical languages. All right. Now, there are three methods. Let's just say I have three copies of, I didn't intend on doing this, but it just seems to make sense to me in this moment, okay? I have three copies of the book of Philippians, three manuscripts, okay? One is an Alexandrian text type. How do they know it's Alexandrian? Right, you don't need to know right now, do you? They determine that it's Alexandrian, okay? This one is Byzantine, okay? And this one is Western. They're all the book of Philippians. They're all from different periods of time. This one is from the 4th century. This one's from the 12th century. This one's from the 13th century, okay? They're all different. Which one is the original? Well, someone might say, this one says God This one says God. This one says Christ. Let's go with God. Another person might say, this one says God. This one says God. This one says Christ. Right. But this is from the 12th century, 13th century. This one's from the 4th century. I'm going to go with the earlier one. I'm going to go with Christ. Does that make sense? So there's different methods for determining what your Bible ends up with word for word. So here are the three methods. Majority text, textus receptus, and critical text. Majority text, we already covered that. You know what it means. Whatever the most of them say, that's what you go with. Doesn't matter. All the manuscripts are the same. Fourth century, same as 12th century. It doesn't matter. Whatever the most manuscripts say, let's go with that. And then there's the Textus Receptus people. Textus Receptus is an interesting little character. It's what the King James Version of the Bible is based on. And there are some people so committed to the King James Version of the Bible, they even claim that the Textus Receptus, the Greek text that it was based on, is the new inspired word of God. Inspired in the 16th century in Greek. Or there's the critical text. Critical text says, which is the best manuscript based on where it was found, how old it is, comparatively, which one is the best possible reading? That's the critical text, and that is the best way to come up with your text for your Bible in English. I brought with me, and I'm going to pass it around, I brought with me my critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And what it says is, Novum Testamentum Grace. What do you think that means? Greek New Testament. But it's in Latin, but it's a Greek New Testament. And the preface is in German. Okay. Uh, Flip through it a little bit. I'm going to pass it around. Um, There's a little piece of paper in here. Don't lose that. Um, It's a reference. But uh, you'll notice this is the Greek text. And all these notes show all the different variations and all the different names of the 
manuscripts they found that are variations of that text. Do you see that list? All the manuscripts are indicated just by a single letter, and it's that long. So this is what a critical Greek New Testament looks like. When Erasmus in the 16th century made his Textus Receptus, his Greek New Testament, he had about 25 Greek manuscripts. Do you know how many Greek manuscripts this is based on? 5,800. Which do you think is closer to the original? I'm going to say this one. Because also Erasmus Greek New Testament, the Textus Receptus, um, was also Byzantine and the Byzantine manuscripts are all late-date manuscripts. The Alexandrian manuscripts are early-date manuscripts, which he didn't have any of. So can you all of a sudden start to see why maybe the King James Version is not the best version? Because it's not based on a critical text. It's based on the Textus Receptus. Okay, I'm going to just hand that around. If it's, if it's interesting to you, take a look at it. If it's not, pass it on. Okay? Um, yes? The ESV is a critical text. Okay, there's two guys named Westcott and Hort in the year 1881, and they created the first critical Greek New Testament. So Erasmus Textus Receptus reigned supreme as the only Greek New Testament for several hundred years. And then in 1881, finally, Westcott and Hort said, but we have so many more manuscripts now. Why are we not making a new Greek New Testament? And... Do you think there was resistance to them making a new Greek New Testament? Absolutely. They said, no, 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 we've got the word of God. We just leave it alone. But Westcott and Hort, thankfully, they made uh, what, what became the American Standard Bible, the New Revised Standard Bible, which became eventually the ESV in the year 2001. Okay? Anything else about that? I don't know. Um, I doubt any that you've ever heard of. Most Bibles that we have, the NIV, um, the NASB, uh, the CSB, the ESV, any other translations you can think of off the top of your head that you're curious about? (laughs) (laughs) He actually... Okay, well, that's a translation uh, methodology. See, he doesn't, he's not concerned about word-for-word translation. He's concerned about thought-for-thought translation. He's like, what's the general idea here? But he actually did go back to the biblical languages, believe it or not. Um, uh, to tra- he, he went back. He, did, he didn't go back to an English version. and, and do, He actually went back to the Greek, to a critical edition, and... and Wanted to know what did it say, and then he said, "Now let me paraphrase it." So, so kind of surprising, actually, isn't it? But most of the translations that we know of are t- critical text. Um, but uh, the Textus Receptus is going to be the Greek behind the King James Version, New King James Version. Okay, first came out in the year 1611. King James Version, also called the Authorized Version, it was authorized by the king. Okay, we're going to look just a little bit at writing materials. 
So the reason we're looking at writing materials is because I, I find it very significant. And the reason I find it significant is because, uh, so think back with me to the day of Moses. Moses is traditionally understood to be the author of the first five books of your Bible, also called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, okay, the law. Moses is the author of those books. What, how did he write them? On what material did he write them on and what did it look like? What did people write on back then? Why don't we have it still? What's the big deal? What's the problem? Where, are, where is all this stuff? Didn't he have Dropbox? You know, save that stuff when it, so you don't lose it. What did people used to write on? Uh, I think it's significant to our conversation. I'm going to cover it now so that we can look at maybe some bigger scheme things. Um, so here we go. What I did was I compiled examples for you by means of pictures. So I'm going to give these, and then I'm going to show you some examples throughout time of what these things looked like. First one I want to talk about that people used to write on was stone. Can you think of in the Bible an example of text being written on stone? Ten Commandments. Very good. And who wrote those Ten Commandments on stone? God himself. The writing material chosen by God himself was stone. Why? Why didn't he type it up? Could God have done that? No, I'm asking that for real because doesn't it show that God uses the materials at hand during those periods of time? So then, 2,000 years later, is God going to use the materials at hand at that time as well? And the materials have changed by then? Is God using the materials at hand today? Because they've changed. Or the materials at hand today? Because they've changed. Is it any less the word of God because it's in digital format? Absolutely not. It's the material of the day. Okay, stone. Ten Commandments. Okay, here's another one. This is from 1775 B.C., the Code of Hammurabi. This is supposed to be like a finger. You can kind of see it. Big old, it's eight feet tall. Can't really tell, can you? This is written in Akkadian, which is old Babylonian dialect. And it contains 282 rules. And... Go to that next one. I zoomed in on, so this is the little relief at the top. You see there's a guy seated with a, some kind of writing implement in his hand, and then there's another guy standing and speaking. See that? So there's a guy speaking, and then there's a guy writing. The guy speaking is the god Shemash, and the guy receiving and writing is King Hammurabi. So what he said is, I have received the law of God and I am writing it down as his word on stone. King of Babylon. Didn't go so well for Babylon, did it? Here's another one, the Rosetta Stone. You've heard of Ros the Rosetta Stone. At least you've heard of the software Rosetta Stone, right? Um, the Rosetta Stone is from 196 B.C., and uh, it was issued by the decree of a king, and it contains three languages. And 
I had to zoom in so you could at least see something, but at the very top, you can only see this much of it, is Egyptian hieroglyphics. You can see the end of it. And then there's a middle section that's different, and then there's a bottom section that's different. It contains three languages, all of the exact same wording, exact same text, but in three languages. And it's actually a progressive language. It's a really old dialect, a newer dialect, and then an even newer dialect, okay? And so what you have, let me just, uh, let me make sure I get it right here. Yeah, the top is hieroglyphics. The middle is called Demotic, which is an old Egyptian language that came after hieroglyphics. And then you have Greek on the bottom. So they didn't even know how to translate hieroglyphics until they had the Rosetta Stone. And now they could reverse translate by this. So Rosetta Stone is a very, very significant find. But what's it written on? Stone. That's our point, right? Okay. Second writing material is clay. Um, cr clay, they would get, they, you could form it into different things. And um, you would wait, you would take this clay and you'd wait till it's almost dry. And you'd take a little thing here. It's almost shaped kind of like this, but it's a little fatter. And you would make little indentations on it. And a long one, but followed by three short indentations. And then maybe a squiggly one. And then, but all these had meaning. And then it would dry and you would put it in a fire and it would last. So they would press in on the clay and that would be how they write on it. The most famous of these is from Cyrus the Great. Who is Cyrus the Great? What significance does Cyrus the Great have? That, yeah, he was, okay, yes, he was the king who, okay, so he was the Persian king who led the war, the battle against the Babylonians, defeated the Babylonians, and then released the Jews from captivity from Babylon. This is from him. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's made out of clay. And uh, I just want to read out of Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and he put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now, the Cyrus Cylinder doesn't contain those exact words, but it does reference the release of the Jews from captivity. Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? That we have that from the year 539 B.C. What year were the Jews released from Babylonian captivity? 539 B.C. Pretty, that's pretty good. You got to admit that one, okay? That's, that's a pretty good find. Next, papyrus, and it looks like papyrus is where we're going to end tonight, okay? Papyrus, we are familiar with the word papyrus. Papyrus was a reed, a plant that grows in the swamps along the Nile River. And what they would do is they would cut it down, cut it into strips, and they would dry it, and then... Uh, in their own way, fashion them together into long strips. 
um, and they would create a couple of different types of things with them. This was done as early as 1000 BC. Okay, so we've gone from about 2700 BC to 1000 BC, but something else we just looked at, like the Rosetta Stone, was from the year 280 BC, and it was on stone still. So you can see people used these different materials at different times throughout history, whatever they could get their hands on. Now, this is from the Nile River, so if you didn't live by the Nile River, did you have a hard time getting your hands on papyrus? Yeah, sure. So it makes sense, doesn't it? It's not as, uh, it's not all that durable, um, which is why all the manuscript pieces we have of papyrus are all falling apart, crumbling. And that's why we find so many little fragment pieces. I mean, literally, we could have a papyrus fragment that is that. That contains a biblical text, and we're calling that a biblical manuscript. Okay? Um, I'm going to show you, well, just wait just a second. There's really, what do I have next? Two methods. So you could take this papyrus, and you could do use it two major ways as we're, for our purposes. You could put it in a scroll, or you could make a codex. Uh, a scroll, you could stretch to about 25 feet. It's really as long as they could do them, evidently. That's as long as you find them. And uh, uh, the greatest example is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and uh, although it wasn't the, there's something called the Isaiah scroll. It contains almost the entire book of Isaiah, and it's on one single scroll, and it's 20, 24 feet long, I believe. It's 23 or 24 feet long. And, uh, but it's, it's actually made of leather, so a little different. But there's big scrolls that they would use, but they would do the same thing with uh, papyrus. Another thing you could do, though, is make a codex. A codex is more similar to a book. So let me show you a couple. Uh, I guess I need to cover this first. I'm going to cover this, and I'm going to show you some examples, and we're going to end with that, okay? Uh, there's two different ways that they could write, and I'll have to come back to this. I'm just going to cover it quickly. But there were uncials, uh, also called a majuscule, and a biblical text would be all caps without punctuation or spaces. I wrote that same thing in all caps without punctuation and spaces. Look at how hard it is to read. All caps without punctuation and spaces. That's what the manuscripts look like. That's really hard to read. How do you know where the words end? How do you know where sentences end? Context, I guess. That's hard, isn't it? So let me show you. This is the oldest. Uh, uh, yeah, there it is. This is called P96. It contains most of Paul's epistles. The oldest of all manuscripts of Paul's writings comes from the year 175 AD. So a little over 100 years after Paul wrote them, this is a manuscript containing all of the Pauline epistles. And so you can see it's all, you probably don't know that, but it's all capital letters. And you can tell there's no spaces between the words. There's no punctuation. Can you read that? Even if it were in English, how hard would that be to read? Okay. But then there's another kind called minuscules. And minuscule manuscripts actually have uppercase letters, lowercase letters, punctuation, and it looks something like this. Okay? Minuscule text, that's actually my Greek New Testament that's floating around. It would be in a minuscule text. Okay? Because it has punctuation, it has lowercase letters, it has uppercase letters. All right? Um, 
Let me just show you for, uh, I have a couple more pictures of some examples. And so I'll just show you so that we can move on to something next time. There's f what's called the four great uncial codices. That's plural for codex. And you can see the dates that they are. There's Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrius, and Codex Ephraimi. And so I just want to show you those pictures so you see them. Um, Codex Sinaiticus, this was found in the year 320. Uh, sorry, found in the year 1844 from the year 320. And it contains half of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. And it's in a codex form. All these are codexes, which means that it's kind of like a book. It's parchment or, or vellum in layers and then folded. And so it's more like a book than it is a scroll. This is what a majority of our manuscripts are. They're found in, in, in codices rather than scrolls. So don't think when we have a biblical manuscript, it's like a bunch of scrolls. It's mainly in codices uh, in, in, these, uh, in a codex form. Okay, so that's Codex Sinaiticus. That's Jonah. That's the text from Jonah, not that, but the one before. That was, uh, anyway. Codex Vaticanus. Where do you think this manuscript is kept? In Vatican City. That, it's theirs. You can't touch it. You couldn't even photograph it until somewhat recently. Um, Codex Vaticanus, uh, year 325. It's been part of their library since 1475, at least officially. Uh, it contains all of the Old and New Testament. All of the Old and New Testament. Pretty cool, right? Looks like that. There's, I, I zoomed in on a page. You can see it's all uppercase letters. Codex Alexandrinus. All Old and New Testament. Looks like that. Pretty cool though, right? Um, this is what your Bible is based off of. This someone's work of translation and comparing all of these manuscripts. This is where your Bible came from. All right, last one. Code, this is the most interesting one. Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, made in the year 450. Can you even somewhat read any of this? There are two different texts going on. There's a text from here to here, a column, and a text from here to here, a column, and then behind it, there's a full page text. It's because it was originally a Bible manuscript and they washed the page so that they could reuse the paper. And so now they're looking at the washed text and calling it a Bible manuscript because it, it doesn't contain all of the Old and New Testament, but it contains quite a bit of text. Pretty interesting how they can do that, right? Um, all right, we'll have to pick up next time, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the last few writing materials, um, but then we're going to go on um, kind of to more of how the canon is formed. And what is, the can what is a canon? What is the canon? Well, we'll talk about that and uh, what it looked like, how the Old Testament was 39 books and not any more or less, and when it came about, and who decided that information. Start with the Old Testament. So we're going to look at specifically the Old Testament and how it was formed next week. Okay? All right. Again, if you have any questions about this, please ask. If you have questions that you think of, if you just write it on a piece of paper and drop it in that little box right there, it will end up in my possession. 
and I will do my best to cover that for you, okay? Don't even have to put your name on it, all right? Any question that you have whatsoever. So we're not going to be doing this study for very long, okay? So we're going to cover a lot of material here in just a few weeks. So this is not one of those eight-week things, okay? Um, so we're going to cover a lot of ground, but I hope that you glean from it a great deal of information, and it starts to get you thinking about and answering some questions to where your Bible came from. And I hope at the end of this that you feel more secured and informed that what you have is actually the Word of God, and I know it to be true, and you have a refreshed uh, heart for the Word of God, and you want to read it and love it, know it, obey it. That's my hope, okay? In a world around you that says that Bible needs to go in the trash, we say, no, it needs to be cherished, and here's why. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, loving us and for caring enough for us that you might speak to us. As we look through how the Bible came to be, I pray that you would help us in, in giving us understanding of these things, that we can see your hand throughout history preserving your word for your word endures. It is by your word that you bring people to faith in Christ. And so you will, Lord, work throughout time to preserve your word and to deliver it to us that we might read it, that we might know about you, that we might hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, give us help. I pray that you would also really just give a reviving of our hearts to, um, to your word. Maybe, it, maybe it's for the first time ever. Give us just a desire and a thirst, a hunger for your word. And I pray that you would speak to us through it. Help us to understand by your spirit. Help us now as we go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys so much for being here, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday morning.